All right, here we go. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Sample Hour. Um, I'm honored today to have my good friend, uh, Mr. Jan Irvin on. Jan has pointed me in multiple directions. So, anybody that's a fan of the podcast, um, there's a lot of gratitude towards Jan. Um, Jan is his uh, his writing and just his work has has greatly influenced my own research, my own writing, and I've been fortunate enough to. Uh, assist Jan in some research and I've taken pleasure and pride in that. Um, so, uh, you can check him out, check out his work at gnosticmedia.com. Please, please, please subscribe to his podcast. Uh, follow him at Twitter. It's at, at Gnostic media. Um, like him on Facebook. Um, also shoot him a friend request. He always has great insight. He's always posting awesome stuff on Facebook. Um, just your, your research in, the psychedelic movement and MK Ultra has been very uh, eye-opening for myself and, and multiple other people, a lot of my friends. Um, so, Jan Irvin, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me back, Drew. And, uh, you know, I've been uh, dying to hear what you thought of the article yesterday when you and I chatted. You were in the middle of reading it. So what did you think of the of the new piece? I thought it was really good. And now that was now I think I, I had a chance to read that. That was the was that the same one that you'd sent me before and just kind of modified. It was similar. I- um, it possible. It's possible because, you know, over the summer I kept, you know, we were having to spend so much money on books and research and everything. So you had offered to help us uh, acquire some of the books. So I was constantly messaging you, you know, we need this, we need that. And I may have sent you the article back then, but you know, it's gone through many, editions. Uh, it's on 3.5 now. So that means 35 edition, you know, 35 drafts since I started writing it. So, um, you know, there you have it. So it's now at 58 pages. But for those of you in the audience who want to read the full article, it's called uh, Entheogens, What's in a Name? The Untold History of Psychedelic Spirituality, Social Control, and the CIA. And uh, they can find it on the front page of my website, GnosticMedia.com, G-N-O-S-T-I-C, Media.com. Yeah, it's it's definitely worth reading um, for anybody that hasn't, um, you know, something that goes on. And I think, you know, it, like I've used I've 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 partaken in um, psychic some psychedelics. I used mushrooms a couple times and uh, I've smoked DMT a couple times. And I think for me, like I I didn't do it to it's kind of a weird thing. Like I, I'd done some re- I, like I read the John Hopkins articles and I'd. I, sure. I tried to like do it and I wanted to like try to, you know, it, it was more of like I wanted to kind of broaden my horizons. I wanted to kind of, you know, it, it did. It's weird. It, like I, I think about it over and over again. It's like, you know, I feel like it helped me, but maybe I just actually helped myself. Um, and something that um, and, and, and for anybody that and we like we said on the first time, I mean, like, you know, I mean, like. <laughs> The funny thing is, is that like as much as people like to attack you, because there's really no other way to put it. Like people, I mean, it's like a it's a nonstop thing, and it's <laughs> it's, it's crazy. To and, me. Then, and 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 they'll sit there name calling me and yeah. attack me, and then if I'm not super uber extra nice to them, they'll say you're so mean. You you're not <laughs> treating me nicely. It's like you just came at me calling me all sorts of names, you know. And then they'll accuse me of not being open minded for not accepting their feedback about my work that they haven't 
read and yeah. refused to read. Yeah. You know, so it's like, so you're attacking me for being, for not being open-minded to hear your feedback about my work that you refuse to read before you give me your feedback. Got it. Wouldn't it be wise to figure out what the hell it says before you give me feedback on it? You know, it's like, you know, I often give this analogy of, uh, you write a book on fishing and all of a sudden all of these people come up to you and start criticizing you about your book on Chevy engines, right? You've never written a book on Chevy engines. They've never read your book on fishing. <clears throat> and when you try to explain to them that they're wrong, that your book is about fishing, they'll tell you to shut up, that you're being rude or mean and not accepting their valid feedback. Yeah, I, I it's weird to me. I mean, it's so weird because, like, usually whenever somebody says, yeah, but Jan's been debunked. And, and nobody said that to me, bef like, recently. But when I first started, like, reading your articles and promoting your work, I'm like, well, have you actually read it? Well, it's so long. And I'm just like, <laughs> what well, that's like, that's like, that was like uh, Simon Powell's attack on me when he went on uh, Radio 314 and attacked me for 25 minutes a couple years ago. And uh, Lana had asked him if he had read it, and he said, no, it's too long. It's, but, he, but he went on the radio for 25 minutes attacking me and then admitted that he hadn't even studied it. And then later on, he wrote an article that they published on uh, Reality Sandwich, and he took, he ignored all of the research presented in the first 24 pages, took a quote from, like, page 25 in the conclusion, and then worked like backwards to debunk me. Oh, well, you know, all of this takes a large amount of evidence to, you know, great claims take great evidence or something like that. And it's like, well, you know, if you didn't skip right to the conclusion, you would have seen all of the evidence presented there. <laughs> yeah. But, well, but you know, but that's, you know, let me just say that's the whole point, though, is it's to attack the presenter and to kill the messenger and to get people to not look at the work itself. It's just a, a PR tactic. Yeah, it definitely is, and it's it, it's something else that's like uh, that's fascinating. Is it's like you know what's interesting is is that I think why people find you so threatening is because it's you like you attack their demigods because like and you, and you hit on it in your article like what ethnogen means is uh is it like God God within correct like I'm I'm entheogen generating God within. Yeah, and it's and it's like, but the funny thing is, is that like the psychedelic movement and and just the whole culture of psychedelics like has created like these demigods within like sure. Gordon Wasson or Leary, Terrence McKenna, Albert Hoffman, uh, Aldous Huxley. Yeah, they're all they're all portrayed as gods or saints, and they were all actually CIA agents. <laughs> it's so crazy. Um, it's so it's so and then like and then people are like, well, why would they? Why would they do that? But it's like why why like the CIA hasn't like I was just looking at this thing. Um, like the, like the, like they haven't tried to use. Like the CIA, like it's like saying, well, it's. It, do you remember when um, the whole war on drugs thing first came out? And they're like, oh, no way is the government behind crack and cocaine and, and sure. And it's like, well, and now it's like, oh yeah, the government's behind that. And it's just like you know, they make it. They watch a movie or somebody popular in pop culture comes out, and it's like, oh well, I can believe it now because I, I saw it on TV. They actually yeah. said it on TV, so it, it must be real. Like I was, I joked with you yesterday, and I said like. Maybe people will finally start to believe you 
when they actually like it, when when they make a movie about your work or when they well like, you know kidding yeah <laughs> and it's so but it's no so kidding. it's so funny man it's like it's like how much more and and what's awesome about you is you just continue to do you you don't let any of this bullshit bug you in the sense of like to to discourage you from doing your work and your work only finds more and more information and then like when i bought that book and i sent you that uh timothy leary book it, it's right in there it's right like right. timothy leary is saying it themselves but at the same time they're not reading his books they're not well reading- you know what what you get is most of these new agers they typically read one or two or three books they'll have read like maybe one of terrence mckenna's books maybe Rick Strassman's book and maybe one other book in the whole field. And then they think that they're, you know, and then they go and trip and then they think that they're experienced and educated in the entire field. I've got, you know, a whole house here full of books on the history of psychedelic drugs and everything. And I've read 90% of them. And, you know, I maintain the large library so that I can go through and fact check and, and go to directly to the primary quotes for everything that I'm looking for, you know. And so, you know, if you if you put primary documentation from these people's own mouths, from their own books in a paper, most people won't even believe it. And almost never will they just go to that person's book and open it up and look up the page number and verify the citation. I mean, it's literally that easy to just open up the book, you know, go to the page, you know, and, and these days on Amazon, you know, you can buy a used copy of most of these books for a couple of bucks, you know, sometimes they're a lot more expensive, but a lot of times you can get them for a dollar or two or three. Yeah. And uh, you can go right there to the citation and check it. Did Jan make that up? Holy crap. It's right there. What do you know? You know, it'd be crazy as if you put citations in your work. Oh, that's right. You do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, you know, and it goes back to that old saying by Arthur Schopenhauer. It's all, all truth passes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. Third, it is accepted as being self-evident. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's and 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 right now, I think we're starting to we're starting to get to the point where it's being accepted. But you know, there was a couple of years there where it was violently opposed, and <clears throat> I would wake up in the morning and there would literally be like ten or twenty uh, hate emails in my <laughs> inbox every morning, and almost always from people who had never studied any of my work at all. You know, and when we when we published the recording of Terrence McKenna at the uh, CIA's uh, Esalen Institute, admitting that uh, he was a deep background and public relations agent and he had been recruited and in uh, the seventies, um, you know, people went absolutely ballistic over that. And, uh, all of these guys, Graham Hancock, even former professors from uh, that had been on my show, like, or I mean, uh, current professors that had been formerly on my show, like Professor John Hupps, made up wild stories about how Terrence was actually talking about how the mushroom had recruited him. Never mind the subject and the predicate of the of the sentences and paragraphs, which was FBI. Me recruited, you know, me working in deep background and you know, speaking for Terrence McKenna and then him working in uh, public relations. And then he says, and I've been in public relations ever since, you know, for like, you know, it was about 15 years. And uh, it was just completely outrageous. I mean, you know, we got uh, TV stars like Joe Rogan uh, out. He went out attacking me for publishing that and professors and 
Oh, and the biggest one who just made up a wild lies about me was uh, Graham Hancock. I mean, that guy, I've got page after page of of uh, stuff on my on my Facebook wall of him just lying. And then I've got his screeds in my uh, message box as well. That's interesting, too, because uh, Graham, wasn't he attacked for his own research? Like well, well, sure. But, you know, I mean, you know, the the issue is that uh, Graham uses almost entirely secondary citations and he his citations are most of the people that I expose, especially in his book, like Supernatural. I've read like three quarters of the citations in that he uses for that book. And they're all people that I have already exposed and refuted. And, um, you know, so of course he, you know, of course he feels directly threatened because I've debunked, you know, by debunking the citations that he used by proxy, I also debunked his, his, his book. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like a, how dare you yawn for reading my citations. Right. Yeah. Up. How dare you ever actually read those citations? Well, you know, and the, the only way that the CIA and the military intelligence got away with this stuff for the last 55 years is because people didn't go down to the primary citations. The citations were there, but nobody bothered to check them for 55 years. All of these academics, you know, and, and a lot of the issue is that a lot of these academics, they create uh, academic cells and then they cite each other to create a false air of authenticity in the, in the research. And these are, this is actually intentional uh, you know, counterintelligence against the population. And I'm actually writing a paper on this topic right now, but they'll, you know, they'll, 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 they set up these cells and then they cite each other. So like, you know, for instance, like Dr. Carlos Castaneda, who wrote all the Don Juan books, he and uh, Professor uh, Peter T. Furst and Dr. Barbara Meyerhoff, they were in an academic cell where they always cited each other and, and uh, uh, you know, were in collusion with each other to help each other fake their research. So, you know, I, I have a friend, uh, Professor J. Courtney Fikes, and, you know, he's an actual initiated Weechel shaman. <laughs> so he actually went down there and lived with the Weechel for years and uh, like the waterfall jumping and all of this stuff. I mean, the, the Indians that he lived with and he knew many of the the people that uh, Castaneda and Fierce Meyer, Meyerhoff and interviewed. In fact, the whole Yaki Indian thing is actually based off the Weechel. They they changed the name to cover it up. But uh, he met these people and they told him flat out that uh, Castaneda and the other doctors had made it all up. That's interesting, man. I, you know, so, you know, and, and they're all his friends now. I mean, you know, the ones that are still alive because it's been, you know, six, 60s, 70s, 80s and onward. But, you know, having lived there like, uh, you know, the 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 local uh, chief or whatever, like adopted him and all of this stuff, you know. So <laughs> so they're like telling him all of the inside scoop on what these guys did. And then you have Fierce working with Wasson and you have Castaneda working with Wasson. You have Wasson heading up the MK Ultra Subproject 58 program, which became the infamous May 13, 1957 uh, Life magazine article, Seeking the Magic Mushroom. That was, uh, you know, all of the information in that article is also faked, right? And so, you know, when you get the bigger picture, all of these guys are cross-citing each other. And most recently, I, in fact, exposed a guy who 
pretended to be a friend of mine for years, a guy by the name of Professor uh, uh, Carl A.P. Rock from Boston University. And in the latest article, I exposed how he and <clears throat> Wasson and Jonathan Ott had worked together to fudge their research as well. And then what each of these academic cells do that, you know, so, okay, you have the Castaneda Fierce Meyerhoff cell, you have the Wasson Ruck Ott cell, and then you'll have other cells out there as well. And then what these cells do is they cross site each other to further bury their scandal. That's interesting. It's like so, a, it's like a perpetual. They just perpetual their right, and, and it, it, you know. So, and these are all academics, and it's all academic fraud. I mean, but the but the issue is is that the students and other professors, et cetera, uh, end up believing you know the secondary citations. Well, Fear says this, and Castaneda says this, and Meyerhoff says this, and Wasson says this, so it must be true. Right, not realizing that. Oh wait, these are all secondary citations. Let's go down one more level and excuse me and find the primary citation you know it's like when i went into you know the whole history of maria sabina who we you know she was the mazatec indian that we got the magic mushrooms from that wasn't it in fact he's the one who marketed them as magic mushrooms but when you know she had actually come out against was and trying to expose him and she had uh had somebody basically transcribe a book for her, a guy by the name of Alvaro Estrada. And she's got a book uh, published in 1981, uh, Maria Sabina, Her Life and Chance. And uh, in this book, Maria Sabina says that before Wasson showed up, nobody used the mushrooms to find God. They were strictly used for healing and for curing sickness. And um, so Wasson had actually come into Huatla de Jimenez in, in Oaxaca, Mexico, with a prefabricated religion that he then forced onto the Mazatec people, then published it in life, and then drove thousands of hippies down to Huatla de Jimenez, who then reinforced it. What he was doing was actually using uh, weaponized anthropology. In fact, uh, you know, uh, Professor David Price has a book called weaponizing anthropology but you can see in the weaponized anthropology stuff which comes from oss agent uh, gregory bateson and he was involved in the uh mk ultra program too as was his his wife margaret mead they were all these guys were dirty but he developed this term native revivalism and uh, that actually uh how they and you can read this in the oss uh, quote that i have there in the article if if people are interested but he explains how to collide cultures together to, to destroy them. And this is exactly what we see with the uh, Mazatec Indians and Maria Sabina and all of the hippie 60 counterculture that, that went in there. And then it's subsequent spreading out over the last 50-some uh, years, since 1957. That's, that's fascinating, man. I think uh, it, it's, it's crazy, man, because like even like – so when you – it's easy to first like it i mean it's it's just undeniable like it's undeniable because like there's when you when you see the primary citations you mean yeah yeah i mean and then yeah like, and, and 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 you know the the funny thing is is in my article and i'm sure you saw this i lay out all of their secondary citations and show what they say and then i go down to the primaries and show how they made the whole thing up yeah it's um it's awesome because a lot of people aren't thorough and it's like and i think like because you are so thorough like it threatens people it threatens people like how could you how could you do that and it's just like 
Well, so and it, you know, the, the thing is, Drew, is that they had me caught up into their stuff. I believed Ruck and all of these guys. I mean, these, you know, a couple of years ago, maybe two or three years ago, I had like 50 professors on my email list that I emailed with back and forth pretty much daily, you know, or weekly, uh, exchanging research and everything. And when I published that first Wasson article, Gordon Wasson, The Man, The Legend, The Myth in 2012, like. 80% of them stopped talking to me within two days of publishing that article. And I've never heard from them again since. It's like the story of, of Jan Irvin's life, man. It's so, it's so fucked <laughs> up, man. Like you're, well, like, it, it, bo- it well, bothers me, but man. The, the, the funny thing is though, is they would say, well, I have issues with your work. Well, what are they? Would you quote some of the citations or some of the information and some of the conclusions that are wrong? I never got one of them to send me one single error that they found in the citations. That's uh, fucking nuts. I just like it, <laughs> it, it bothers me because it's like you know. I mean, the thing is too is like because like like well, through it, our communication, like we become friends, and I think even if like like even like taking it like from a friend standpoint, like even if I disagree with one of my friends, like I'm not gonna just cut them off. Like it's number right. one, that's well, childish, and number two, like it's it's just bullshit. Well, you know what they, you know, see the the issue was is and and you can even go on my Facebook page from two three years ago and read all of their attacks and stuff. But what the issue is is it if my work is correct, <clears throat> it exposes their whole body of work in within the psychedelic field is completely false. Yeah. And so, you know, when we go in and look at all the primary citations and look at how the CIA marketed the counterculture and the psychedelic revolution and everything, well, you know, these same people who feel threatened, many of them were also agents involved in that operation. Yeah. You know, and so as I've been digging through, see what happened is in 2007, 2008, I was writing a book on the history of John Allegro, uh, who wrote The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, and I'm his publisher now. As of 2009, we, uh, his daughter and I together published, republished his book. But in 2007, 2008, I was researching all of the attacks against John Allegro, and I found that, you know, except for the, the 14 that published in the London Times the, the exact same week that Allegro published his book, you know, they published this, this one page attack on him in the London Times. And it was really interesting because Allegro had 150 pages of very detailed, excruciatingly painful notes to go through in the back of this book. And it took me like, like a year just to pull up the citations on, in, on psychedelics using computer technology, which they didn't have back then. It still took me months many months to pull up these citations, just the, the ones focusing on the one topic, much less everything else. So these scholars, they get together. And in the same week that Allegra published the book, they all published this big attack on him saying how ridiculous it was. But they never addressed a single point in his work at all, just like they never do mine. It was all about attacking him and his personality always. And so I went through in 2007, 2008, looking at all of these attacks and then going all the way down to the primaries. And what we found, and I published this in my book, The Holy Mushroom, uh, what, I, what I found, and with uh, John Allegra's daughter's help, uh, going through the, the uh, archives and everything, uh, you know, the, the estate stuff, is that uh, 
every single citation that Allegro made in regards to the psychedelic drugs was totally accurate, while Gordon Wasson had faked and twisted every single thing that Allegro said for his own agenda. And then we later found out. And by the time I was done writing that book, I knew that Wasson was CIA, but I didn't have a primary document yet at the time to prove it like we do now. Now we have several. But uh, so we we didn't identify him yet as CIA, but we totally exposed him as this huge con man that had fabricated everything he had said against Allegro. And that was subsequent, subsequently spread out through the psychedelic you know, research field, through ethnobotany and ethnomycology. And, um, and so they had made up, especially Wasson had made up all of these attacks. So that was actually what made me aware to start looking into Wasson's background starting in 2008. So then over the next several years, I went through many different university archives. Of course, uh, the Wasson archives at Harvard, Wasson's daughter locked me out from uh, visiting there. So then what I had to do, which is the only archive that I've ever been locked out of, by the way, <laughs> and, and um, even the CIA sent me stuff, but uh, you can't get stuff from the Harvard archives uh, on Wasson. Uh, but uh, so what I ended up doing is looking at the list of names and people that were in the Wasson archives at Harvard. And then I reverse engineered the information. OK, so Wasson had letters to this person, this person, this person and that person. And then you say, OK, well, did these people have their own archives at another university? And so then, you know, I could go to their archives and sure enough, I could find Wasson's letters and their, you know, their exchanges in the other archives. And so I could reverse engineer all of the stuff that Harvard and that Wasson's daughter was trying to prevent me from seeing. It's crazy, man. So, yeah. yeah and we ended up going through Princeton, Yale, uh, UC Santa Barbara, Stanford, um, you know, uh, Columbia University. There was a Dartmouth. There was about 10 or 12 universities that we acquired about maybe a 1, thousand twelve hundred pages worth of primary Wasson documents. You know, and the funny thing is, uh, you know, Carl Ruck, he works with this guy, uh, Mark Hoffman. And Mark Hoffman used to even brag about how he went to the Wasson archives and got a copy of everything there. And every time I would try to ask him to verify a document or something. It was always this mealy-mouthed avoidance. He would never send or scan anything, would never tell us what it said. And he was supposedly the only one that had a whole collection of all these documents outside of Harvard. And then he would always go in and launch all of these bogus attacks everywhere against my work and everything. So, you know, in hindsight, once we got the other half of the letters from the university, we could then see what Mark Hoffman was covering up on his side. Ugh, it's deep, 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 man. <laughs> That's what it is. It's like, it's just so like it. It's so crazy, man. It's so crazy. Like that. Um, it's like no matter what they do, they're not going to stop you on Irvin, man. That's what I like. It's like, well, you know, and I suppose if they, you know, wanted to kill me, they would just create, you know, several thousand more uh, researchers who would suddenly be, you know, looking even closer at my work. And of course, I've released my research database uh, called The Brain for everybody to download. And so what happens is, um, you know, for every person that downloads The Brain database, that's one more person 
who can pick up on my research exactly where I left off. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's uh, it's it's such a big web too, and that's the th- I, I remember looking at Facebook and someone saying like, "How do you have proof of this?" You're like, "Have you looked at the brain? It's all here. Like it's all." And if you look at it, like it, it's all there. I mean, it's it. I remember even like just even in casual conversation. Um, I remember the last one that really blew my mind was the music part. Like I remember the, the Grateful Dead one, or which? Uh, yeah, the manufacturing the, the Deadhead, and then right the the stuff about the doors. Um. And I was like, like, even if like people who, who don't read, it's like, okay, well, isn't it strange that Jim Morrison's dad retired the same day that he died and he was in charge of the, like he was ahead of the Navy during the Gulf of Tonkin. Like, well, yeah, well, he launched the Gulf of Tonkin, Tonkin incident. That was uh, Jim Morrison's dad. And then Jim himself becomes the poster boy for the anti-war movement for the very war that his own dad started. Right. Yeah. It's just it's just comic irony, you know. Yeah, it's 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 a constant comedic, uh, comedic irony. Sorry. Oh no 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 no, you're you're fine. I I say I say stuff wrong all the time, Jan. It's all it's, <laughs> it's all good, man. You get heated in the conversation, and it's like, oh man, um, yeah, it's it like it it just it's I think too, it's like it's such a mind fuck for a lot of people to actually believe that one like. One argument I heard was how how could the government the government so uh, what did somebody say to me the government so um, incompetent how could oh yeah well you know and that's what I started out the new article with because when I published all the stuff on the other ones well they couldn't have done it you know the psychedelic revolution fought the government and we thwarted MK Ultra but then you start getting in there and it's like well. Who does it benefit to believe this blowback? You know, the the government are all just idiots and stupid. And literally in the first two or three paragraphs in the new article, I start out breaking that whole argument down because I've heard it so much. You know, people just use that to stop thinking. You know, I'm I'm going to assume that the CIA are just morons and and not me. And so therefore. I'm not even going to bother to research it. And then I'm going to argue this absurd non non sequitur uh, point about the whole thing. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's funny, man. Like people fight and kick to avoid like, just, just it's, it's so weird. Like they, let let me, let me just read this. This is the second paragraph of the new article which is Enthugens, What's in a Name? The Untold History of Psychedelic Spirituality Social Control in the CIA and it starts off uh, second paragraph, the official history has it that the CIA personnel involved in MKUltra were just dupes, kind of stupid, and by their egregious errors, the psychedelic revolution, quote unquote, happened thwarting their efforts the claim is that these substances got out of the CIA's control. Words like blowback and incompetence are often tossed around in such theories regarding the CIA and military intelligence, but without much, if any, supporting evidence. It's almost impossible today to have a discussion regarding the actual documents and facts of MKUltra and the psychedelic revolution without someone interrupting to, quote-unquote, inform you how it, quote-unquote, really happened. Even the most, uh, even though most often they have never studied anything on the subject, <laughs> and then and then uh, and then I continue on here. As we get started, I would like to propo- propose that we question this idea of blowback. Who does it benefit to believe that it was uh, all an accident and that the CIA and military intelligence were just dupes? Does it benefit? Does it benefit you or them? 
it might be uncomfortable for, for a moment for some of us to admit that maybe they, the agents, weren't so stupid, and maybe we were the ones duped. Sometimes the best medicine is just to say, hey, you got me, and laugh it off. For those of you who's, who've heard these blowback theories and haven't considered the possibility that the CIA created these movements intentionally, this article may be challenging you, for you, but stick with it as it will be worth your while. So I have to go into all of this just because I know most people who you know put their conclusions before their research, they're automatically going to attack the article from the first page if I don't address those very stupid issues that they will throw out, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, it, I mean, I liked it, man. I, it, it sucks you right in. And then it's, and then it's just like, it just uncovers more and more and more. Um, so let me, let me ask you, what did you think at the end about how it leads into, uh, Huxley and Wasson and Leary trying to recreate the, uh, biblical fall? Yeah, I, it, uh, it's it's interesting man i remember that uh that passage about uh uh huxley talking about how he's he's the devil or and then like uh well Washington. i don't th- he doesn't say he's the devil but he's chuckling away you know he's having a conversation with leary and he's chuckling away because uh you know he says the first prohibition was was drugs and then uh leary and him are sitting there giggling about it and going oh going to recreate the biblical fall i get it now i'm just looking for the quote here uh let's see i think this is the McLuhan one let me just see if i can find that uh other one all right he says um uh he's having a it's timothy leary having a conversation with aldous huxley and this is from leary's book flashback uh, flashbacks. He says, your role is quite simple. And this is um, uh, Huxley talking to Leary. Become a cheerleader for the evolution. And of course, you know, the evolution is is the Huxley and evolution. The, the Huxley family has worked in eugenics and uh, social control uh, since, uh, you know, well, for centuries, basically. And even uh, uh, Aldous Huxley's grandfather was the propagandist for Charles Darwin. And so um, he says, uh, uh, that's what I did and my grandfather before me, speaking of uh, Thomas Huxley. And he says, these brain drugs mass produced in the laboratories will bring about vast changes in society. This will happen with or with uh, with or without you or me. All we can do is spread the word. The obstacle to this evolution, Timothy, is the Bible. Notice how they're talking about we're going to spread all of these drugs around and it's going to be an evolution. Okay. <laughs> So we're going to get high to evolve. Got it. All right. And, you know, for a long time, I bought that idea, too, because when you have this uh, experience with these substances, you go, wow. And this is what I had to research because I believed that the uh, religious or spiritual experience with the substances was was real for many years until I got got in and began to research all of the primary documents and realized, oh, wow, they fabricated all of this. But he says, uh, let's see, the obstacle to this evolution, Timothy, is the Bible. And then Tim says, I don't remember any discussion of brain change drugs in the Bible. Timothy, you have, have you forgotten the very first chapters of Genesis? Jehovah says to Adam and Eve, I built you this wonderful resort eastward of Eden. Uh, you can do anything you want, except you are forbidden to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge. The first controlled substances, says Larry. Exactly. The Bible begins with food and drug prohibitions. 
Timothy says, so the fall and the original sin were caused by the taking of illegal drugs. The fall and original sin were caused by the taking of illegal drugs. By this time, Aldous was chuckling away, very pleased with himself, and I was rolling on the floor with laughter. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's disturbing. I mean, it's it's also interesting, too, because... Huxley to to so many like people in like the liberty movement and people who you know believe in freedom like is is like this hero to them. Yeah, I, I you know I got to say something to that, and you're exactly right there. But if you actually get in and you begin to read Huxley's letters and you read all of his books, his books are actually a guide plan. You know, people have heard of this New World Order. Well, guess what, folks? Huxley created that term, Brave New World, the New World Order. That's Huxley's creation. The, the Brave New World was Huxley's guidebook. It, it was the, the blueprint for how to do this. It wasn't a warning. His Berkeley talk wasn't a warning. He was throwing it in everybody's face and, and, and mocking how stupid they were for not catching him. Yeah. and Something else, too, that you pointed out to me was... How many psychology books uh, back in Huxley's time? Like he wrote the, uh, um, what's it called? The uh, the beginning part, like he'd have like a quote or a little passage before like. Well, yeah. Well, I'm actually working on another article, another, another article that uh, I, right now it's presently called, you know, something Aldous Huxley or where is Aldous Huxley based off of the, you know, where's Waldo cartoon books. <laughs> Uh, because Aldous Huxley, you know, you'll be reading this document on the CIA's Macy conferences on control of the mind. Oh, there's Aldous Huxley. You'll be reading uh, about uh, the Harvard psychedelic uh, experiments that they were doing in the you know nineteen er, early nineteen sixties. Up oh, there's Aldous Huxley. You know, uh, Aldous Huxley's in Egypt uh, with this guy, Dr. Godel, you know, talking about secret human experiments in Egypt. And he's traveling around to um, to uh, universities with Julian uh, to watch the latest brain research going on. He's like, there's Aldous Huxley and over here is Aldous Huxley and over there is Aldous Huxley. And, uh, you know, Aldous Huxley was actually one of the probably one of the worst psychopaths that's ever that I, well, at least as, you know, as far as my research, he's one of the worst that I've ever come across. Like the only person that I could put him in the ballpark with, as far as psychopaths, he's way worse than guys like Hitler or Stalin or Lenin. You know, the only one that you could really compare him to would be like a Leon Trotsky, whose brain was half rotten. And Leon Trotsky during the Jewish Bolshevik revolution, he murdered like 45 million uh, Russians. So, you know, the, the, the Jews in the Bolshevik revolution, they killed like at least 60 to 66 million people between Lenin, Trotsky and Stalin. But Trotsky was by far the worst of these guys. And then, you know, so Huxley actually prides himself in being much more humane, though, about how he goes around passing off his death to humanity. And when you get into Huxley's letters, I've got this one letter from him where he's actually talking about his uh, mental breakdowns and all of this stuff. And I've actually been talking to a psychologist and uh, she's been helping me with the research and everything from a psychoanalytical point of view. And uh, what we're discovering in uh, in Huxley's letters essentially is that the man was absolutely batshit crazy. 
And uh, I mean, Huxley actually considered his body as separate from himself. His body, you know. So this is where we get, you know, this this Huxley and transhumanism crap that guys like, you know, Ray Kurzweil from Google they're around promoting this ridiculous crap. All of this stuff comes because Huxley thought that his body was separate from his mind. Okay, and so. Um, you know, it, it's a dissociative disorder. It's one of the worst things that you can have in psychology. And so, and, and you know, like Huxley had severe hemorrhoids too. And uh, you can read about his, you know, he's talking, in one of his letters, he's talking, I think, with Julian or Matthew Huxley about uh, this, you know, he, how he had learned uh, to wash his asshole to, to cut back on his constant hemorrhoids. And so here's like, you know, in his late 40s, early 50s, Huxley finally learns how to clean himself. And so, but, you know, the, the Brave New World was written in 1933, like two decades before this. And so during, very likely during this time when Huxley was suffering all these hemorrhoids. So in other words, what I'm getting to is like the whole psychedelic revolution and everything that transpired, his Brave New World is trying to make everybody crazy like him. That's all based on his psychosis, his, his um, dissociative disorder and his hemorrhoids. It's funny, but it's creepy all at the same time. So, so you know, everybody you know that's on their psychedelic journey, they're actually traveling through Huxley's bung. So, there's the wake up call, folks. <laughs> yeah, he. Uh, I mean, it's like it's it, it it's it's weird. It's just it's so weird. Like, uh, like it, it, it's it's like a a weird part of me like respects Huxley from the point of like being blind. And like teaching himself like how to Well sure, and you sent me that one book about learning how to, you know, bring his eyesight back a little bit. Yeah, yeah, the art of seeing in the um and it's so like it's it's you know, like part of it is like that, but that doesn't mean like like his his intentions weren't what people thought they were. Like his intentions Oh sure. Well, you know, when you when you look at his intentions, you know, it's like no matter how you look at this guy Huxley, he was just completely completely insane and he was also you know one of the architects of mk ultra in fact mk ultra was um funded the same week that humphrey osmond got him the the mescaline that he ended up using excuse me to write his famous doors of perception book and that was funded uh, uh mk ultra was funded a- april 13 1953 and uh, just ironically at the same time that agent Humphrey Osmond sent Agent Aldous Huxley that mescaline. That's when it was. That's when MK Ultra was funded. Ugh. And you know, we do know that Humphrey Osmond was a part of at least Project uh, Subproject Forty Seven. And I've got you know, we've got the letters of of Huxley at the Macy conferences. He's talking about these Control of the Mind conferences. We know beyond any doubt that the Macy Foundation was CIA funded through MK Ultra and he's at all of these conferences his his nephew Francis Huxley is involved in this stuff Julian Huxley's involved in it i mean the whole the whole Huxley clan clan family tree they are complete eugenicist psychopaths all of them uh, you know you you go straight down the line even uh his daughter or granddaughter, quote-unquote, Animal Huxley, I've forgotten her real name, she was part of the uh, whole Vito Palakis uh, freak scene at Laurel Canyon. Okay. And, and, and ironically, Aldous Huxley only lived two or three blocks from Laurel Canyon uh, at the time. 
He lived off of uh, Mulholland, like three blocks away. Now, what was the freak scene again? For, for well, uh, for okay, now the freaks, they were uh, Vito Palakis and his wife Sue. They basically launched the whole Grateful Dead look and dance. Now, last year I had Sue Palakis on my show and she denied all of it and played stupid, but you know, and it's like Dave McGowan was just like, you know. She didn't know anything about her whole history, and he had gone through and pulled up all these documents. And, and you know, so he and I had a good talk about how everything she said in my interview with her was completely fabricated. She lied about the whole thing. But uh, she is the one who, you know, started um, using uh, thrift stores, and she opened her own store on the corner of Laurel Canyon and, and Hollywood Boulevard or Sunset selling all of these used clothes that became the whole like Grateful Dead and 60s look and dress and everything. That was started by Sue and, and, and Vito. Vito paid to open the store. And so, uh, you know, they are the ones who brought about the whole hippie look and, and dance and all of this stuff. And so that's who, who she was. But uh, they had produced an album. They were even involved in like the Anton LaVey stuff and uh, one of their babies, uh, uh, was uh, mysteriously killed in in one of these things too. Uh, fell through a, a skylight from their roof. A two year old. What it was doing on the roof next to the skylight is a whole other issue. But um, yeah, so they were a part of this whole scene. Aldous Huxley lived just a few blocks away, and the whole Laurel Canyon scene is where all of the music of the '60s, essentially, or a lot of it, where it came out of, like the Doors and the Birds and the mamas and the papas and the beach boys and all of that stuff, they came out of Laurel Canyon. And that's where the, the Charles Manson murders were as well. That's all, they're all related. You know, Manson was a part of that whole scene. He was actually one of the better musicians out of there because most of them had to use a studio, whereas Manson knew how to actually play. <laughs> but, um, you know, so, uh, <laughs> that whole scene erupts out of Laurel Canyon and then it spreads everywhere and, and Vito and his wife are right there. And then Aldous Huxley's daughter, we see her show up later on as Animal Huxley on the back cover of, of one of Vito's albums. It's so weird, like how everything just ties together. Yeah, it's it's a pretty small group of people. I mean, it's like a few hundred people. They all are following the same agenda. A lot of them have either Zionist, extreme Zionist leanings or and or extreme Anglo-British leanings. I would say, you know, a lot of the MKUltra program appears to be an amalgamation of Anglo-Judaic uh, influence. Like if we get into the doctors that were involved in MKUltra and the actual people, at least, you know, and we're always told, oh, it was all German and oh, those evil Germans and all of this anti-Germanic, uh, you know, racist nonsense that they play up. But if we actually get into the documentation, at least 50 percent of the MKUltra doctors who were doing these human experiments were Jewish. And then we have a lot of British doctors. There's one Egyptian doctor. There are no Muslim doctors, you know, except for the one in in. Uh, in Egypt, and we, we're not sure of his religious background, but you know, it's like there's no black doctors. There's like one Chinese doctor and one Japanese doctor, or something, and then there's all of these Jewish and all of these English doctors. <laughs> are they uh, are they like Ashkenazi Jewish? Yeah, yeah, many of them, I would say. All right, you know, it's like it's pretty hard to go through and figure out if they're you know. Uh, now I'm forgetting the the other name. Uh, 
Oh, which, you know, but Ashkenazi versus, uh, oh, (laughs) one of the other forms of Judaism, right? That, you know, the, 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 the more true, uh, uh, historical Jews to that region, but there's also a lot of evidence coming out now that maybe even the Ashkenazis are in fact related, and that other professors had fudged that research as well. It's it's such a mind fuck, man. It's like stuff has been so manipulated on purpose. Oh and, sure, and it's it's like it's so. I mean, you just gotta you just gotta do your diligence, and it's it's uh and it, and when you do do your diligence, like every like people come after you, like the uh, the status quo of academia naturally, like it's set up that way, like it's set up. Oh, to- sure. Well, that's what you know the academic journals and all of this stuff are for. It's to make sure that anybody who isn't toting the official line doesn't get covered, essentially. Yeah. And so, you know, like research my, like mine, you know, it's like, where would I even publish this new paper in an academic journal? Because it, it, it totally exposes the rest of the field and all of these other academics as, uh, you know, for the last 50 years is incompetent well, you've, and, and involved in, in this cover up. But you have like, but you do have like some of your work published at Purdue, correct? Like, isn't. Well, they, you know, in 2009, they had sent me a letter, maybe two, yeah, it was, I think early 2009, they sent me a letter stating that I was being recognized as a significant scholar in the field due to my book, The Holy Mushroom, on John Allegro. And then they offered to store all of my life's work uh, from then on at Purdue University. Of course, I haven't heard from them now. I'm like, <laughs> Since I published that Wasson article, I never heard from him again, I think, you know, but uh, yeah, you know, and I had started sending them stuff to have a, you know, backup archive at at Purdue of all of my research, but they had offered to keep everything there. And it's the same facility that stores uh, like Amelia Earhart's work and all of that stuff. And they had offered to keep all of my life's work there at the archives. That's interesting. Well, something else too, which... Many of these people, and we, we talked about a little bit on um, on the first episode that I had you on, but like uh, everybody, like all these Terrence McKenna lovers, don't even realize that if it wasn't for you, they couldn't love Terrence McKenna so much. Well, isn't that so funny? And they'll, you know, they all come come out and attack me, but almost all of the early audio tapes of McKenna that got out there came from my own archives and I inherited them from a uh, woman, uh, Jeannie Brittingham Erstad, who uh, went by She Who Remembers and she had a radio show on KPFK and she had been archiving all of this stuff. And uh, after 9-11, on about 10 days after 9-11, I had started encoding my my cassette archives to digital for the computer and then a couple of months into the project, I went over to Jeannie's house and I told her I was involved in the project. And she's like, here, here's all these other cassettes. I want you to do all of this stuff. And then she ended up dying in April 2002 and she left me all of her archives. In fact, I'm still encoding. Uh, there's actually a video in the other room encoding right now from her video archives, which I started encoding the videos like a year ago and then put it aside for like a year. <laughs> it was like, oh, my God, this is a huge project. I think I did like 15 tapes and was like, oh, God, there's like 300 more here. <laughs> but now I think we're we're through about 100, 150 of the tapes. Um, so we're we're getting a lot further along and getting that stuff uh, digitized and getting these huge boxes that take up so much space of uh, VHS tapes out of here, you know. <laughs> but, um, you know, so all of this stuff was archived there. And um, 
There was about 50 hours worth of McKenna talks that she had. And then I probably had like another 20. And I was a big McKenna fan early on, too. And then when I started writing my first book, Astrotheology and Shamanism, I started writing that in 2003, 2004. And right away, trying to verify McKenna's archive or his citations, it became very problematic. And, uh, you know, what's funny is he always cites this guy, Roland A. Fisher, regarding, you know, taking mushrooms and visual acuity and, and this stuff increasing. Well, Roland A. Fisher was another MK Ultra doctor. In fact, I've got uh, uh, the son of, of Roland Fisher's assistant, uh, who's got all of uh, uh, his dad's um, notes from working with Roland Fisher on the MK Ultra project. Man, it's like uh, you just continue, Jan, to destroy the fact that Jesus isn't real to a lot of psychedelic people. <laughs> like when you, well, you know, they, you know, and actually, in hindsight, what's funny is like when you look at how they're tr- trying to recreate the biblical fall and how they're trying to destroy Christianity and Islam. Then you step back and you go, oh, so Christianity and Islam are actually the most accurate. <laughs> You know, and uh, so this is what they're so threatened about. You know, Huxley, you know, Huxley would blame the masses for World War II and all of this stuff, which, of course, the elites created and the governments sold the people into it. They had to create, you know, false flags to sell the population into it. And then once the people would go to war, the elites and the Fabian socialists like uh, Aldous Huxley would then blame the population for what they had done. You know, look at the war that the masses created. Well, it was the elite, the elites that dragged them into it, the elites that created all of this. It's the elites that created this consumerist society. It's the elites that got us, you know, uh, to not use electric cars 100 years ago, to not use hemp 100 years ago, et cetera. They are the ones who have done all of this stuff. And then what Huxley's game is, is to take all of the stuff that the elites have done and spin it back on the masses and then blame the masses for it and then create sales pitches to the masses to further dumb themselves down so that the elites can, you know, can uh, evolve. You know, but what what's really interesting is when you get into his work, this uh, evolution that they're selling is um, it's really interesting because the elites have to push down everyone else to elevate themselves. You know, they have to. It's like putting a, a boot on the back of your neck and then offering you a hand up, right? Yeah. And and so uh, you know the elites seem totally incompetent and incapable of actual evolution, even though they promote all of this Huxleyan, Ray Kurzweilian uh, bullshit. And um, you know, so their whole goal is to sell all of this stuff to dumb the masses down to give the false appearance that they have elevated. They didn't go anywhere. They just pushed everybody else further down back into an animalistic state so that they could feel better about themselves. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the Hegelian dialectic, right? Like, uh, right. Well, you know, and it's like, let me see if, uh, so it appears that, uh, Huxley's idea of beauty means the degradation of society. You destroy one part, the masses to elevate the other, the elite, which does not seem able to elevate itself on its own. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's crazy, man. I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting on so many different levels. Like it, it just makes you like it, it, the, 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 the true, like, um, the whole divide and conquer thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, that's what it, that's all it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's just sure. kind of perfected 
it, it kind of makes but, me. But it's it's really interesting though because you know here you have the two grandsons of Charles Darwin's propaganda manager selling this whole evolution thing when in actuality they're trying to destroy and degrade the masses so the elites can appear to have elevated without having done anything but putting the boot on the back of the neck of everybody else. Yeah, and it makes you it makes you just think that you're some piece of shit, which is um which then is kind of interesting cuz then they sell you on this the new age bullshit like Right. And well and and transhumanism like yeah. um you know, like you'll get these guys on TV, you know, promoting Ray Kurzweil and all this stuff, you know, and doing radio shows with them saying, you know, well, life is just so difficult, you know, and it's so hard and we got to, you know, That's what's get ourselves uploaded into the computers. And it's like, well, you know, do you remember the TRS 80s back in the late 70s, early 80s? Where are they now? And. You know, and it's like, okay, you know, it's 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 all a part of Huxley's dissociative psychological disorder. Okay, that's where transhumanism comes from. These numbskulls think that they can separate the mind from the body and then upload the mind into a computer. But of course, the real trick is, you know, how would you know that you've really been uploaded, number one? But number two, they could just turn it off. Number three, it's a trick. You know, see, what they want to do is they want to create a computer like, you know, Facebook combined with video games type world. And then everybody is is caught in a world of um, distraction in there and forgetting about actual life. OK, yeah. and then the elites can walk over and turn off the computer and everybody's dead, you know, and then they can go, oh, look how great we are. We're so clever. Look at me. My name is Ray Kurzweil. I'm the smartest guy in the world. <laughs> I mean, it's just complete ridiculous nonsense. Yeah, it's um, it's it's uh, it's interesting, man, because like when I when I kind of think about it and take a little step back, it's uh, why do we have like the, the desire for I mean, well, there's a couple things like number one. Yeah, life is hard. That's what it's supposed to be about. Like, well, sure. Yeah, well, you know, see, see, you have, you know, Huxley was a psychopath and he had dissociative disorder. He was uh, very psychotic. And um, so he he had all of these problems with his body and he was sick as a child and had to regain his eyesight. But he had all of these medical issues, mental issues. And so his idea was to make everybody else crazy like him and have dissociative disorder like him so that he could feel good about himself. You know, if you have dissociative disorder, uh, the whole transhumanism thing the mind is separate from the body is based on dissociative disorder, his, which is basically like he was insane. Yeah. He's sucking everybody else into his insanity. He's, he's sucked everybody else into his insanity and all of the drugs in the water supply today and all the food in the water supply and all of this stuff. This is actually his, as he uh, called it himself, his quote unquote fantasy eugenics and getting, you know, getting people to eat wheat, uh, you know, for three times a day, getting people on the low fat, low salt diet, all of that uh, works towards mental breakdown and social control. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's all tied together. It's, uh, it's like it's 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 um it's 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 stunning when you when you think about it. It's stunning when you think about like everything is is on that like why and and, and that's the funny thing too. Like the um 
when you talk about the salt and the fats, it's like we we got when did we start getting away from that in like the the eighties? They start yeah, really- something like that. You know, yeah, they started telling us how bad animal fat was, yeah. and now it's and like, oh disease, wait, then heart then heart goes through the roof. Right. Obesity goes through the roof. Diabetes, heart disease, all of that stuff just goes to the roof. Heart attacks gone through the roof. And then you discover, oh, wait, animal fats, saturated fats are not bad for you at all. It's the vegetable oils that actually oxidize in the body. And then the wheat has all of the bad LDL cholesterol, which then uh, oxidizes. The wheat oxidizes. The oils oxidize. Then they pull uh, calcium out of the bloodstream into the arteries and it coagulates basically with the, um, with the LDL cholesterol and then, uh, causes a heart attack, you know, but you know, the the first heart attack, uh, apparently wasn't even reported until after vegetable oil was invented. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. You know, and then, and, and, oh, and then in the, you know, the 1920s and thirties, they had that huge dust bowl that they created by, you know, by, cutting down the whole, you know, plains area and planting it with uh, wheat. And so then this exacerbated um, the whole degradation of society by getting people to think that wheat was a good staple of food. Wheat is just really a poison. I mean, anciently, historically speaking, if there was a drought, you might, you know, have a few months of it on on hand so that uh, if all your crops failed, your animals died, you would at least have that to get through a few months. But then after you got through that few months, you stopped eating it. You didn't eat it three times a day for the next 30 years or 50 years or whatever until you got a heart attack. It was something that you used as a filler to make you feel full during times when there wasn't real food. Hmm. Yeah, corn, uh, corn's kind of the same thing, right? The corn is like... Yeah, yeah, and, and, you know, and they both have a lot of molds and stuff that grow on them too, so then your body is fighting these mycotoxins. Um, you know, wheat has a, a huge amount of sugar. Wheat also has natural volume in it. And, um, you know, so like two two slices of bread is equivalent to like a tablespoon of sugar. So all these people, you know, they're eating their whole grains and trying to get better. And, you know, I'm helping heart disease and all this stuff. They're actually causing it. And then uh, the phytic acid in the in the whole grain uh, wheat berries actually causes a lot more problems. That's like the the toxic uh, chemical that's in spinach, or you you know when you when you wash beans bef- you know overnight before you uh, cook them. What you're washing off there is the phytic acid. This is why kale is totally poisonous when it's raw. It's it's got uh, huge amounts of phytic acid, just like spinach. Kale should never be eaten raw, but you have all of these low fat vegetarian hippies running around. Um, you know, thinking that kale is the next best thing. It's actually poisonous. Yeah, I heard that before the kale boom, the number one buyer of kale was Pizza Hut, and it was used as a decoration at their pizza buffet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I remember now that you say that, you know, you'd have the dishes at the salad tables, and then they would have kale all around it. Yeah, but yeah it's, everybody it's, eats it. Yeah, and it tastes absolutely like shit. You know, I, I, you know, you have to really be sold the whole, you know, vegetarian urban religion thing and the whole low fat diet scam to, you know, buy into that. And we've, you know, and I was vegetarian vegan for twelve years and almost killed me literally. Um, so you know, I'm speaking from having come out of that. So sorry for all of you, all of you vegetarians out there with fragile ears, but. 
you know, and veganism even more so is essentially just an urban religion. It's, um, you know, you don't see it in people that have to do a lot of hard labor, a lot of regular daily work, um, people that live on farms, et cetera, ranches. It's, it's almost strictly within cities and people who are removed from the food supply and who take their food out of wrappers. Yeah, I always thought it was interesting, too, that when you look at uh, people who help treat eating disorders, veganism and vegetarianism is always like a classified eating disorder. Like it is. Yeah. I, di I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, if you go to their stuff, it's always like, and, and people that I know that have struggled with like bulimia or anorexia, like they always try to say that they're like vegetarian or, or something like that. And it's, it's. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of, and it's always been interesting to me when I put those together. And then it's, um, and that kind of like peaks at like another issue as to why we're so obsessed with our physical appearance. And, uh, and it's like, and it, yeah. it's like, yeah, well, my, my first wife was extremely obsessed with her, uh, physical appearance and she was bulimic as well, you know, and, you know, vegetarian at the time. So was I, but, uh, it fits with what you're saying there. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a weird thing. Like I've, you know, whenever I've tried to do like a drastic weight loss or whenever I'm like feeling like, you know, like my own like personal appearance, like sort of deal. If I'm struggling with it or I, I put on weight and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to, when I eat just vegetarian, I did it for like a year almost. And, um, I lost weight and then I stopped losing weight. It's not like, and then, and then your health and your teeth start going and then you start <laughs> gaining it back. But you know, the issue is, is if you just get off all of the grains and especially wheat, you should be able to lose about 18 to maybe 23 pounds a month. Yeah, my friend, my friend Will went gluten free, and he's like, "Man, I've lost like sixty pounds. I'm, I'm cold." Well, now. there's, there's, there's no reason to eat this stuff when you realize how poisonous wheat really is. You know, once you get it into your head, and see the 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 hard thing is, is wheat is very addictive. It it acts on the opiate receptors in the brain. So for the first two weeks, you're actually going through uh, your your drug addiction withdrawal. And so this is why that, that first two weeks is so hard. And then what you do, once you get past that two weeks, then you start feeling better. The, the fog starts to lift off your brain after about 10 to 14 days. Like I said, it also has natural volume in it. So you, you do, you are getting drugged. And then, um, from about uh, the two week to one month point, then you start looking for substitutes for wheat, you know, like, uh, spill it and, or, or, I forget the you know, millet and uh, spelt these other these other uh, grains the lesser grains they're called and uh, so then you'll go through these substitutes and then you'll do that for a few months and then one day you'll realize well that stuff doesn't make me feel that good either it's like when I interviewed uh, Dr William Davis of the, the author of Wheat Billy he says well you know those things are less bad but not good. You know, so, you know, so one day you, you, you'll be eating that stuff and you'll just stop and then you'll, you know, you'll just stick to your bulletproof coffee in the morning and you, you'll make eggs and bacon or, you know, sausage or something healthy for breakfast, something with a lot of pr protein. You'll put a lot of, uh, butter, you know, good grass fed butter. And I'm not talking about like, you know, factory farm Lando stuff here. Eggs. We're talking about, yeah, we're talking about, you know, well, Kerrygold is, is better. We're talking about the good stuff. Don't buy grain fed beef. Don't buy grain fed butter and that stuff. And if you put grain fed butter in your coffee, it tastes absolutely horrendous. It has to be grass fed yeah. or you can't even swallow the stuff. But, um, 
you know, so it, once you get back on the high fat diet, then the body starts getting the fats and the, the nutri- uh, nutrients it needs. Then what happens is the weight stabilizes. But I know a lot of people who have lost anywhere from, you know, maybe 150 to 40 pounds within, you know, several months or a year and changing nothing but cutting the gluten and grains out of their diet and switching to, you know, a more traditional diet. They call it the paleo diet, but it's basically a diet of what people ate any time before 1900, before you had all of the processed foods and stuff. So, you know, you eat the 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 fat on your meat, you know, like your dad made you do when you were a kid. And back then it was good for you. Now it's bad, you know, but, uh, and, and, but we're finding out now that the saturated fats were never the problem. And all of the trans fats and the vegetable oils, that stuff is actually all of the LDL, uh, or not the LDL cholesterol. That's that's what actually causes the abrasions in the arteries and stuff. And then you uh, put in uh, the wheat, and then the wheat contains the LDL cholesterol. So if you cut out the wheat and the grains, um, and increase your intake of butter and and uh, the fat on the meat, etc., good grass-fed uh, pastured meats. Uh, you'll begin to notice that your weight will no longer be a problem. Your weight will totally normalize. Any skin problems, uh, mental problems, sleep apnea, all of that stuff, just start clearing right up. Yeah, it's. Uh, I gotta. And I gotta let get me, my stuff together. <laughs> yeah, and let me let me just say that we heard back, you know, over a couple of years of doing all of those shows on fat and weed and all of that stuff. We heard back from probably more than a thousand listeners. And there wasn't one exception where somebody said that they, you know, had a bad result, at least as far as I'm concerned. Like Dave Asprey said he had one person who got worse, but they weren't sure of pre-existing conditions. But, and and, you know, I had at least a thousand emails and notes from people and every single one of them said that they had dramatic turnarounds. We had this guy, Mike, on my show who had MS and he turned it around in like three to six months after cutting weed out and going back on a high grain diet. And he was on all of these drugs. He had a three year old son and uh, couldn't even run and play with his son. And within a few months, uh, he was back on his feet, running, playing, you know, doing all the things that a 30 late, you know, 30s, early 40s guy should be able to do. Yeah, it's uh, I, I, I think about my grandpa a lot because uh, he's like 81. He's pretty healthy. He's had some health issues, but it's mainly like didn't really hit him until old age, which usually your body deteriorates anyways. But I remember always had low blood pressure, healthy heart. He he ended up having heart disease, but it was only because he actually his heart was actually um, abnormal. Like he was born with an abnormal heart. And that's the reason why he had his heart attack. Always ate bacon grease with everything. And I remember. Well, but he's, he's probably eating pasta and stuff, though, too, because that heart disease is coming from somewhere. Oh yeah, well he 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 doesn't eat perfect, but I like whenever he eats like popcorn or whenever he eats anything, it's always bacon grease. Like he puts bacon yeah. grease with everything, and it's like I remember growing up, like my mom, it's like oh, it's so crazy. He's, he's so healthy, and he eats so much bacon grease, and now you're well, like, you know, it's, well, what's funny is we use a lot of bacon grease here too, and and how they actually got people to start using vegetable oils was to get people to stop collecting their bacon grease. Because when you cook your own bacon every day, you have that ready supply of saturated fats that's stable and doesn't go rancid easily that you can then use for all of your other cooking. So what they had to do is they had to get rid of that, get people to actually buy 
go to the store and willingly buy these toxic polyunsaturated vegetable oils that are trans fats and um, use them instead of the daily supply that they had sitting right there on their stove. And then when you get the joke, you know, and then when you start, you know, it took me a while, a couple of years ago, you know, we started saving the bacon grease and putting it in a few things and ooh, and oh, and I would like to be vegetarian instead. And then after a while, you, you know, you just kind of get over it and you're like, oh, look, here's all of this, you know, uh, bacon grease here. But, you know, you had, you always had that supply right there in your own home. You didn't need to go anywhere. You didn't need to buy anything. It was just right there. And, um, you know, so bacon grease is actually, you know, the, one of the more stable things that you can cook in. Yeah. It tastes delicious too. It does. <laughs> yeah, it's delicious. I and it's not kosher, you know, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to, you don't have to pay a tax to Israel. <laughs> That's funny. It's kosher food. You really pay a tax to all, all kosher foods you pay a tax to Israel for, really? yes. Yeah, so so well. any any almost anything that you buy in the middle of the grocery store, you're actually paying a tax to there's a number of different organizations, but you know, like the UL or the K or any of those things that you see on the on the package label, sometimes it's just a U in a circle. Yeah. You're paying a, a tax to a rabbi to bless the food who then collects that money and sends a good portion of it to Israel to commit genocide on the Palestinians. Wow. Yeah, what? Um, yeah, and that's the funny thing too when people ignore um, how much natural gas is uh, is near Gaza, like all, like the natural gas pockets, and it's. Oh yeah, well you know, and that's why they want that area is because yeah. it's got natural gas than anywhere. But yeah, do you think about like the stuff in Ukraine, like because uh, they're doing the false flags now, like that. Uh, I saw something where the the jet that got shot down was a lot like Operation Northwoods. Um, what that was supposed to be. And, yeah, I, uh, I haven't, you know, I don't watch the mainstream media much, so I only get what people send me on it that's already been kind of vetted, you know. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. But I, I, I haven't, you know, tried to get into the whole uh, Ukraine situation much this time around. I know it's a yeah. big issue, but uh, it's just, you know, I've got so much on my plate already. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I totally understand that. I, I, I think about it because I'll read your work. And then I'll like read stuff and it's like, oh, yeah, no surprise here. Joe Biden's son is now a part of uh, this big Ukrainian oil company. Go <laughs> and they're trying yeah. to say that it's I mean, no conflict of interest. You just can't even make this stuff up, right? No. Yeah, there's no, there's no conflict of interest that, you know, the U.S. is running all these black ops and he's the vice president and his son is, you know, involved in uh, the, the gas company. I mean, it's like, yeah, you just can't make this stuff up. No, man. That's why, that's why I don't read fiction because this stuff is just you know <laughs> yeah it's 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 funny man it's uh something else uh oh man it was just on the tip of my tongue like something else that was really funny um man you were just saying you can't make this stuff up it will come back to me um but uh uh oh oh one of my favorites was uh joe biden's telling everybody not to get an ar-15 and they should get a shotgun and somebody pieced together all these like women should shoot a shotgun it shows all these like frail women trying to shoot shotguns and it just bust them in the face and shoot them back oh, and it's like well you know i remember when i was 10 uh my dad took me into the redlands uh san timoteo canyon uh to learn how to shoot the shotgun and um so you know and i was already shooting the 22 by then and so this this particular shotgun didn't have a recoil pad on it 
And uh, so it's a 12 gauge. So he hands me the, the 12 gauge, you know, and I'm standing there holding it like a 22 and I pull the trigger. The gun goes flying one way and I end up 10 feet back in, in the bushes, literally. And then, uh, you know, so, you know, he, my dad's just sitting there laughing himself silly. <laughs> like a good and then, dad would. <laughs> right. And, and then the second time I pulled the trigger, uh, I stood, wait, I the second time I flew with the gun, managed to keep the gun in my hands a second time. And then the third time I shot it, I managed to stand up and hold the gun but I was done and didn't want to shoot it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, it's 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 just funny. It's funny the the disinformation that is 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 a constant stream. Like it's it's designed to make to to it's designed to make you not trust yourself. It's oh, designed, sure, of course. Yeah, you, know, you, you have to give your authority over to someone else, whether it's the cops or the academics or the yeah. the politicians and the other crooks. You know, they they create the false uh ad vericunium you know they they you know they appeal to their own ad vericunium <laughs> fallacies and make themselves the authorities you know yeah yeah man it's uh it's i don't know it's it's funny but thank god we got people like you Jan, to go out there do the reading that people don't want to do 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 stuff and, and it's it's and you know what i mean like it, it's funny too man because it's 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 interesting because like and, and this is kind of personal, but like you've you've talked about on the podcast, like you talk about like all the health problems that like Alice Huxley had and these other people have, but it's like, man, like I mean, shit, like you've been fighting forever. I mean you've you've the reason why you know so much about food is because you've you've had to learn it because you had Well, because I was in and out of the hospital for fifteen years. Yeah, yeah. And it's like it, and it's like I almost I, I almost died on my son's third birthday. I was in the uh intensive care unit at uh Arequipa Hospital in uh, Peru. And it was my son's third birthday, and the doctor came in and he says, I have good news and bad news. Which would you like first? Said, what's the good news first? He says, the good news is that uh, we've pinpointed your problem. All right, what's the bad news? Well, we don't expect you to live through the night. <laughs> Holy cow, man. Holy cow. That's why, that's why to all you trolls out there, if you're listening, do not fuck with Jan. Like, don't fuck with Jan. He'll, he'll make, if you, don't, if you don't believe me, read his Facebook page. You're not going to win. Jan, Jan thinks shit out, man, and he knows how to intelligently defend himself. And uh, it's, it still blows my mind, man. It's like, why? I mean, it's it's like you're gonna get bit hard. I'm just telling you, like, <laughs> don't do it. Well, and, and all it is, you know, essentially, just lay off the grains and eat a lot of fat. You know, and, and the thing yeah. is, is since I got on a high fat diet, yeah, I can string probably two or three times more points together than I could before. <laughs> 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 so it's a high fat diet. So if you, it's to, yeah, I mean, it's definitely. Uh, Cognitive function has gone way up, but you know, I mean, um, you know, we should have your listeners hold you to it and yeah, uh, do like a follow up in the next like three, four, or five months, and make sure that Drew is off of the grain still. And by by then, you the should grains. be down, uh, you know, forty or fifty pounds yourself and feeling great, and you know, you'll you'll be in the flow. Yeah, man, I gotta. It's one of those things. Too. Just just do it, dude. I mean, after yeah. we get off the call here, go in the kitchen. Open up the cupboards, take anything out with flour, wheat, or gluten in it, and throw it in the trash. Anything with, you know, refined sugar, throw it in the trash. 
and just do your shopping from around the outside of the store, the whole foods, the whole vegetables, the whole meats, the dairy, et cetera, and uh, give it three or four months and, you know, just eat like you would have 100 years ago and you'll start feeling a lot better right away. Yeah. And, um, you know, each day that you feel better, it will be more encouraging that you continue. And then you'll look back and you'll just be like, wow, how was I ever like that? How did I let my self-esteem talk me out of doing this? You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing, man, that relationship with food. Like yeah. So just, you know, and you know, it's like, I didn't believe for a long time that it was the wheat. The doctors in Peru cured two of the problems. I had lived in uh, Yugoslavia during the war against Yugoslavia. I was, uh, living with my ex-wife there when they bombed the, the water treatment facilities, et cetera. So I got, uh, two nasty bacteria in Yugoslavia that really jacked me up. And then it wasn't until after I left the hospital in Peru that I started talking with uh, Dr. William Davis. I started having relapses after I got back from Peru, but without the pain. So I knew it was different. <clears throat> and um, that was when I met uh, William Davis, the author of uh, Wheat Belly. And then he started helping me. And then uh, so I've been actually about almost uh, completely stable now for uh, probably about two months now without any problems whatsoever. You know, for the last two years, I was slowly progressively getting better and better and better and better, just sticking to the diet, staying away from wheat, eating high grains, taking in a lot of collagen. And um, so just in the last couple of months, I would say that I'm, I feel like I'm totally stable now, like I was when I was 23, before I became vegetarian and, and got sick. And uh, also, right around the same time I went to Yugoslavia during the war, uh, was right about the same time I became vegetarian. Hmm. And so, you know, I never connected those two until later on. So it was the vegetarian uh, vegetarianism, which was the high increase of whole grain wheat so that you get that protein, Right. And then uh, that exacerbated the problems with the bacteria in the stomach, plus all the phytic acid and everything. And then um, 15 years in and out of hospitals here with doctors telling me that I had, uh, you know, IBS and that that was the problem. And, you know, and I would have to take these drugs for the rest of my life as well, which was, of course, ridiculous. Yeah, and IBS is completely related to your diet. It just means, uh, you know, I'm bullshitting. That's when the doctor tells you you have IBS. I'm bullshitting. That's what it means. Yeah. It, it, uh, means, he's, it means he's totally uh, incompetent, essentially. Yeah, my, um, my girlfriend was diagnosed, I think, with that. And she just cut out grains and she's, she lost a bunch of weight and health. Well, there you go. Now you got to catch up with her because now she'll be looking at you like, Drew, what you doing, man? Oh, I'm man. like. She's like, Drew, you fat slob. Come on. Love yourself, dude. bud. Yeah. <laughs> well, no no kidding. You know, and, and once you start to feel better about yourself, you know, then it's self-perpetuating. So, yeah. you know, you'll, you'll, you'll get into that snowball effect of always feeling better rather than worse. And it's just, you know, taking that first step. And, you know, once you go through the cupboards in your kitchen, and dump all that stuff in the trash, you know, maybe, I don't know, if you have a cat, throw the cat litter on top of it too, right? So then you're not tempted to go back in there and, and fish it out afterwards or whatever. But once it hits the trash, usually that's a good breaking point for people to start getting away from that bad behavior, you know, and that cyclical behavior. Yeah, it's just like anything, man. It's just like kicking anything, like any right. any bad habit. But um, it's just it's it's an addiction, and it's yeah. it's one that you can physically see on you. Whereas, like you know, if you're smoking pot or 
you know, not the pot is physically addicting, more like uh, heroin or something. You know, it's like after a while you can start seeing people that shoot heroin and it's just you, you have it's an addiction to the wheat. Wheat is very highly addictive yeah. and it is playing on your opium receptor sites. That's interesting, man. I never I never I knew it was bad. but I never actually did the research. I think I was, I was probably afraid. Yeah, well, I've done like five or six shows on it, so you know you. I'll check them out. Yeah, all the ones. And I, I, I keep the one with uh, William Davis on wheat up there for free, um, just because it's such an important issue. Yeah. So even though I did that interview, it's been um, three years ago. Next month, I've always kept that one out of the archives and free to everyone. So you've got no excuse, brother. I know that's true. That's true. Well. I tell you what, Jan. I think uh, I think we're running out of, of time for you. I appreciate the time you gave me. Um, everyone, go to uh, Gnostic Media, contribute, um, donate to Jan. Jan does great research. Keep that going. Um, every- and it's uh, g n o s t i c media dot com for those uh, who need to spell out Gnostic. <laughs> correct, correct. Uh, subscribe to his podcast. Like and uh, or review. Um, give him a good rating on iTunes so we can get some more downloads going. Um, and uh, anything else you want to promote, Jan, before we go? Um, how about triviumeducation.com for people who want to learn uh, about uh, the trivium and what it is and how it's been used as a system of social f- control for 2,000 years. We basically flipped it upside down and uh, revealed to the world how it works so that uh, people can learn it and defend themselves. But that is at triviumeducation.com t-r-i-v-i-u-m education.com and are you bringing uh you're bringing pop-up fallacies back too correct yeah i've been trying to it's just you know the threat of getting sued for you know taking somebody's video and you know it's like they pretty much can only be government videos right yeah and i've been you know we've we've got the website totally revamped we've got a new song we've got all of the icons revamped it's totally ready to relaunch we've had Every time we've ever done anything with it, we've gotten enormous feedback from the audience, you know, positive feedback, but um, just one more project. And right now we're kind of doing an audio version of the uh, Enthugens What's in a Name article, but it's a text aloud version. So we have like, you know, like 10 or 12 different voice characters, but it's digital. You know, we'll see. We'll see how that one goes. And then if we want to do an actual recording of it after. Fantastic, man. Fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Um Thank you again for your time, and everybody, thank you again for listening. Take care. Thank you for having me. Short like Bilbo They tell me it ain't no way Can't fit in where the rest do it Fuck them 
build something bigger next to it. You gotta have a sense of humor in this comedy of airs Cause last laughs mean nothing, man, nobody cares Pow, pow, gunman leaving one man in pairs Literally split the difference of a man's affairs I feel like life's like freestanding stairs Watch your footing and you fall the pudding while your shadow stands and stares Lying on the floor, staring up at chandeliers Wonder if the Lord put me here and if he did and if he cares Learn about me over kicks from in between the snares In my heart and in between the ears Yeah, ignore pressure from your peers Life is a performance but you won't always see if the crowd cheers or not Everybody's got similar types of fears You got a lot of overthinking No, it's hard to get the gears to stop turning Stop the sermon Hard determining the plot A lot of learning to get done and the clock's turning Oh, 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 oh